South. And if you're new with us, uh, glad you're joining us. We're sort of in the middle of a series uh, that we're doing through the life of David this summer. We're calling it um, Tug of War. And in many ways, that is uh, depictive of David's life. A, a lot of back and forth, high highs, and really uh, low lows. Um, and we're going to sort of uh, be sandwiched in between both today. As we were, uh, as I was studying for this message, I got an email from a friend of mine this week who is a church planter in California, and I'm on his uh, update list to pray for him and um, support him. And, and so uh, the email came across uh, my inbox, and the, the subject line said, please pray for us, our car was stolen. And uh, he has a family of six, um, not, a, not a huge income being a church planter, and so um, this was a huge prayer request. And I don't know if you've ever had anything stolen from you, but... Isn't that, is there a worse feeling? I mean, don't you just sort of feel violated? Like you've just, you've been absolutely wronged and somebody infringed on your personal space and it's just not okay. Um, when I was in high school, I had a, a bike that, that I rode to school and stuff and um, it was stolen out of my garage. And I can remember just being so bummed and, but you know, life went on and I sort of got used to life without my bike. And I was playing with some friends in the street, not at my house, but at a neighbor's house. Uh, we were playing wiffle ball, sort of a home run derby thing, fun game. And uh, I was pitching, and I saw out of the corner of my eye somebody uh, riding a red bike down the street. And I stopped immediately, and I said to my friends who I was playing with, I think that's my bike. And I looked a little bit closer, and, and it was. As best I could tell, it was. So I looked for two things. One, is it my bike? And two, am I bigger than the person riding it? Right? <laughs> That's an important thing. If he's bigger, it's his. If he's smaller, I think it might be mine, right? And so uh, he was smaller than me. And so uh, I said to my friend, I think you, that guy stole my bike. And then I yelled at him, you stole my bike, right? Just like a crazy man. And he started riding faster. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, he stole my bike. And so I take off running after him. And we're, I'm in a dead-out sprint down the street, and he's pedaling as fast as he can. Well, he had gravity to his advantage, so he won that race. But he got to the bottom of this hill and pushed the bike into a, like a huge bush and ran off. And so I went down, retrieved my bike that was rightfully mine. I, I confirmed that as I looked at it. Didn't just freak out some kid riding a bike, right? Um, maybe it's not a bad idea. <laughs> no, no. And I rode my bike back and my friends were like, what in the world is that all about? And I said, hey, I just had some business to take care of. That guy stole my bike a few months ago and I had to get it back. <clears throat> I think a lot of us, as I thought about this passage, and, and believe me, it ties in um, <laughs> loosely. Um, I think a lot of us live, our, live lives um, in a similar way where, where something, all of us live with things that have been stolen from us. I mean, spiritually speaking, that... That Jesus died to purchase things that are rightfully yours. But that we have an enemy of our, our souls that just absolutely loves to steal. Look at the way that, that Jesus says this in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to what? Steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. I think a lot of us live our lives in the first half of that verse. We, we get that half of the verse. We get the fact that the enemy is coming to steal, to kill, and destroy. And oftentimes, he's really successful at it, even in the lives of believers. 
Where if we were to sort of take a poll of, of, of this congregation today, I think a lot of us would say, yeah, our, our, our marriage is, is hurting. It's not, what, it's not what it could be. Or, yeah, I'm, I'm walking in, in loneliness. I'm walking in doubt. I know I'm not walking in the joy that Jesus died to purchase for me. And I think sort of like that bike paraded right in front of me, I think the enemy loves to parade things in front of us. With sort of the tagline like this, this should be or could be your life. But so many of us live under the weight of having things stolen from us that Jesus died to redeem. Do you know the truth of the matter this morning is not that God is going to keep you free from every single hurt that's ever going to come in your life. See, anybody that stands up here and tells you that, you know is a liar. Because we all live lives that, that at some point are subject to hurt and to pain and to sorrow and to regret and to things we wish we could get around. You see, God is not promising you that he's going to keep you free from hurt and pain. What he is promising is that he will redeem every hurt and every pain and use it for his glory and for your joy. And see, here's a big idea I want us to wrap our hearts and our minds around this morning, and it's this, that God is more interested in redeeming your hurt than he is in keeping you free from it. God is more interested in redeeming your hurt than he is in keeping you free from it. Now, that may sound a little bit counterintuitive at the onset, but I just want to challenge you to think, is it true in your life? I mean, has God, has God kept you free from every hurt? Probably not. If not, you'll just need to live a little bit longer. But he is faithful. He is faithful to redeem every hurt and to use them. For his glory and for your joy. The tension is, the tension is found in John 10, 10, that we have this, this thief that wants to come and steal. And so many of us live lives where we just sort of throw our hands up in the air and go, well, I, I guess that's just the way that life has to be. I mean, I guess I have to walk in the, in the brokenness. It's just going to sort of taint me the rest of my life. I guess I have to walk in the joylessness. I guess I have to walk in the depression. That's just the lot that God has for me. But as he promised in John 10, 10, no, I have way more for you. I have more for you. But so much of the time, I think we live under the weight of, of sin stealing from us what God rightfully died to redeem and give us. You see, I think for us to be the type of people who live under the redemption that God has offered, we need to be aware that there is an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. We need to be on guard, and we need to be willing to fight. See, here's the deal. Christianity is not about making your life easier. It's not about avoiding the fight. Actually, it's about inviting you into it. So if anybody on the onset of faith told you, all right, welcome to the easy life, they lied. Because this is a life, not that's easy and not where we just sit back, but where God invites us to follow him into the abundant life that he has purchased for you, that the enemy wants to steal from you. Here's the way that uh, a great Puritan writer, John Owen, said it. He said this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sinner, it will be killing you. I love the way that Paul writes this in the book of Romans. And this is out of the amplified version that just sort of um, amplifies. 
verses. It says this. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to or the dictates of the flesh, you will surely die. So there's a, there's a way to live that's actually death. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you are habitually putting to death. You see, in the Greek it says present tense verb. So that means it's continually happening. If you're putting to death and making extinct, deadening the evil deeds prompted by the body. Other translations will just say sin. You shall really and genuinely live forever. That God invites us to, to fight. Not to just sit back, but, but to engage in this battle to walk in the abundance and goodness and joy and life that he has for us. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of settling in areas that God has invited me to abundance. I'm tired of settling for just an, an average marriage if God has purchased for me like true, meaningful joy. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of settling for an average purpose when God has said, no, 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 I have a divine purpose. I don't want to just settle for things that come easy, but I want to follow God into everything that he has for me. And that means, friends, there's a little bit of a fight that needs to take place inside of us. Well... Let me invite you to open to 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we're going to see a picture of this play out in the life of David. Just to catch you up, remember his, his life is a tug of war, and, and he's at sort of a dark place. We finished chapter 24 last week where David was hiding out from King Saul. King Saul's a little bit crazy, and he wants to kill David, and David is on the run. And in the first part, verse 1 of chapter 27, you can see David gets a little bit weary. And this is what he says in chapter 27, verse 1. It says, but David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines, their arch enemy. So he says, my best bet of survival is I'm going to go hide out in enemy land. And he does, and he's so fruitful there that the enemies actually give him a town to call his own for he and his men. That town is called Ziklag. Everybody, it's just too fun for one person to say alone. Will you say it with me? Ziklag. Right, that's where David and his 600 fighting men and their wives and children all live. Well, David, living in Philistine land and, and, and sort of fighting under the guise of the Philistine army is going to war with the Philistines against the Israelites. Now this is a, a far fall for, for a man who was so obedient and so trustworthy and so dedicated. In just a few verses, he's on the front lines of the Philistine army ready to fight against the Israelites when some, Israel, or some Philistine um, uh, commanders in the army say, hey, we're really uncomfortable with David going to war with us. He's going to turn on us. He's going to attack us, send him home. And so uh, the commander of the army sends David and his 600 fighting men home. It's a 60 mile walk from the place of battle to their home. And they get home. And here's what they find. First Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse one. It says David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Malachites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive women and all those who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. 
You ever gotten home from like a, a trip away and just all you wanted to do was just come in, put your feet up and relax, and you come home to like a flooded basement? This is like ten times worse, okay? When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire. Their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. I mean, can you imagine? You walk back and and all you want to do is just celebrate the fact that you are safe and that you are sound and you get to sleep in your own bed or cot or whatever. And, And what you see is just a smoldering heap of burning rubble where you used to live. Now, let me ask you a question. Could God have prevented that from happening? Sure. See, but here's the deal. God isn't interested in just keeping you free from hurt and free from pain. He's more interested in redeeming your hurt and redeeming your pain. And in the story of David, we're going to see what that looks like and how we do that and how we step into following God into the redemption that he purchased for us. And one of the first things that we see as we sort of go on this journey, one of the first things that we see is in verse 4, David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. I mean, have you ever, have you just been there with God or you just cry out to him, God, I don't get it. God, we thought maybe we were following after you. We thought we were chasing after you. And and it just didn't turn out the way that we hoped that it would. You see, here's the truth of the matter. Is that redemption, following God into redemption, is preceded by grief. And I think in your bulletin it says anger. As I ruminated on that this weekend and obviously couldn't change it, I liked grief better. Over stolen life. Over stolen life. And see, there's a fight worth fighting because because God's blessing lies on the other side of that battle. But it begins with us saying, listen, I'm not okay with where I'm at. I'm tired of settling for the life where the thief constantly comes and steals and kills and destroys. If Jesus has purchased for me abundant life, like he said. I think one of the main things that the enemy would love to lull us into as followers of Jesus is the idea that, quote, this is just how life is. And see what David and his men, this is so fresh and this is so painful that what they do is they cry and their hearts break until there's nothing left to give. Why? Because they believed that God had something better for them. They believed that life had been stolen from them, and so their hearts are just absolutely wrecked. So let me ask you, are you willing to be that vulnerable with God? Are are you willing to take the the risk of saying, God, I, I wish this were different? I wish this relationship were different. God, I wish this job were different. God, I wish my, I wish my thought life that just leads me down this path of, of depression were different. God, I wish that it were different. That's David's first step is he and his men, they get angry. 
in a righteous way. But the life is stolen from them and they're going, we are not okay with that. And I wonder if you've just gotten so used to it that even though the enemy parades it right in front of you, you just go, yeah, this is just how it is. This is just how it is. And maybe God would sort of chisel off some of the callous that we develop over time to, to, to awaken us to the fact that it doesn't have to be that way. And that's why David's just brokenhearted. See, see, I don't think, if we, if we don't grieve, we will never fight. If our hearts don't break, we never engage in the battle because it's work to engage in the battle. It's work to work on the marriage, isn't it? It's, it's work to sort of open ourselves up and say, this hurts, this stinks, I'm not excited about this, God, and will you come and will you invade? It's easier to just keep going, like everything is okay. Do we grieve, friends, do we, do we grieve over the lost? I mean, does it break our hearts? That people are dying without Jesus. Have, have we just grown callous to that? Does it break our hearts? Or do we grieve over the fact that we, we settle for less joy than God really invites us to? Does that, does that grieve us? You see, if we don't grieve, we'll never fight. And so they start to grieve. And and here's how the story continues. And David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. See, that's a problem with being a leader. When things go right, everybody praises you. But hey, when things go wrong, they start to pick up rocks and want to throw them in your direction. And each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters an underline, circle, star this verse, whatever you do in your Bible. But David found strength in the Lord his God. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Now, it's been seven chapters. Chapter 23 was the last time that David went to God to seek guidance. Chapter 26 is the last time that David mentions the name of God. You see, I think David's not only in enemy territory, literally, physically, but I think his heart is starting to drift a little bit too. And sometimes, isn't it true? Sometimes we need to hit rock bottom to remember that he is the rock that's at the bottom. And that's where David's at. He's broken. He's not only lost his his wives and his kids and his all that he owned, but now his guys are starting to turn on him? You talk about a broken man. And so the question becomes for us, where do we go when we're broken? Where do we go when life hasn't turned out the way that we had hoped it would? And see, here's where David goes. And this is sort of, even though his exterior is just disintegrating around him, what God starts to do is rebuild his interior. See, because God isn't interested in just keeping him from the hurt. He's interested in redeeming the hurt, right? And so David runs to God and it says that God strengthened him in that quietness, in that place of just being laid bare before God, probably screaming out to him, saying, God, I don't get it and I don't like it. And why did this happen? It says he's strengthened. See, here's the deal. If we follow God into the redemption that he has. We need to know that redemption is preceded, sorry, that redemption is conceived in intimacy 
before it's displayed publicly. Before we actually walk into it in our lives, it happens in our hearts when we're laid bare, quiet, and still before God. That that's where he builds David up. That's where he speaks his love over him. That David writes throughout the Psalms, Oh God, your love is higher than the heavens and, and deeper than the seas. Like I can't even grasp it, it's so big. This is where God instills that into David's heart and into his life. Even as he looks out over the smoldering remains of everything that he dreamed of and hoped for, God builds his love into David's heart in the quiet. He restores his hope. I mean, because isn't David, David's at the end of his rope. He's on the run from Saul. That's not going right. He's in enemy territory. And now his, everything he owns is burned to the ground and everybody he loves is taken away. And the people who are left are turning on him. And he says he found strength in God. His hope is restored. So here's a, here's a big application for us, friends, is that if, if, our, if our hope is decimated, if we're running on empty, God is saying, will you come to me? And not just start looking to the people around you to build into you, but will you, will you come to me? Will you be intimate with me? Will you trust in me? Will you abide in me? Will you allow me in the quietness, not in your performance, but just in the quietness of laying bare before me? Will you allow me to speak my love over your life? I love the way that David wrote it in Psalm Chapter 28, he says this, praise be to the Lord for he's heard my cry for mercy. God, come on, please redeem, save, make something out of this desperate situation. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy and I will give thanks to him in song. The Lord is the strength of his people. Oh, did you hear that? You get that? Where, where are we going to for strength? Because God's saying, will you come to me? Will you run to me? A fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people. Bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. I love that David goes in to seek God questioning and comes out with a plan listen look at the way that this continues david said to abathar the priest the son of abimelech bring me the ephod abathar brought it to him and david inquired of the lord shall i pursue this raiding party will i overtake them so he goes in with the question pursue them he answered you will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. See, in the quietness, David's hope is restored. God's promise is given. And David comes out with a plan. You see, most God-centered plans are, are formed in prayer closets, not in think tanks. It's not just inviting everybody to come around and tell you what they think and taking a poll. It's going and seeking and laying before God and saying, God, where are you leading? What are you doing? How are you guiding? That's where, that's where they're formed. And I just have to wonder, for me, and I don't wonder it for you too, are we being robbed of the blessing that comes from intimacy with God 
because our lives are so busy and so loud that we just don't have time to come and to sit at his feet and to hear from him and allow him to wash his love over us and his providence over us and his plan over us. And it's a whole lot easier to gather people around and do a straw poll than it is to go and spend time at the creator of it all who longs to speak to you. Longs to speak to you. And you see, David steps into, as we're going to read about the redemption that God has for him, but his first step is, I'm going I'm to be broken before you, God, and God, I'm going to seek you. Picking it up in verse 9, goes like this. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bashur ravine where some stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine, but David and 400 men continued the pursuit. Now, it was, like we said, 60-mile journey back home to Ziklag, and from Ziklag, it's another 16 miles. So they've logged 76 miles walking over the last three days. And a third of their army goes, listen, this is, I'm exhausted. I'm going to take a little breather here. And David and 400 of their men move forward. And they found an Egyptian in a field. And brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat. And part of the cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. And I just read that every time. Both services I've read that. I'm going, oh man, that sounds delicious. I'd really go for some fig right now. Okay. Um. He ate it and was revived for he'd not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. And David asked him, to whom do you belong and where did you come from? And he said, I'm an Egyptian. The slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag. So David is staring face to face with one of the people responsible for his town being completely decimated. David asked him, can you lead me down to the raiding party? And he asked, swear to me before God that you will not kill or hand me over to my master and I will take you down to them. Do you notice David blesses this guy before he knows if he has anything to offer him? I mean, in the midst of brokenheartedness, David is still being obedient to the Torah. I mean, he's still following God. He's saying, God, I don't like the way this turned out, but I'm going to be obedient through the hurt, through the sorrow, through the pain. I'm not going to pull out because I feel like you didn't do right to me. I'm going to continue to follow you. And look at the way that God blesses him through his obedience. But I want to point out a a bigger picture, and that's this, is that, that David does not go to battle alone. David gathers 600 men, his 600 men, He inspires them and he moves forward. And the only way he's victorious in this is with his army with him. David marches into this town alone to get back what was stolen, does not succeed. As we're going to read, David walks in with his army, he's successful. You see, here's the truth of the matter, is that redemption is often achieved communally, not individually. Will you look around you for a second? I mean, the people that God has surrounded you with are part of God's plan and his provision to be good on his promises to you. God used David's army to help David and them be victorious together. Here's the thing. David was not called to fight alone. And look up at me for just a second, will you? 
Neither are you. Neither are you. I think our individualism has robbed us of so much that God wants to give us. So much he wants to offer us. That we're not willing to let anybody know that that the marriage is hard and that things are rough until the divorce is final. And then we're like, yeah, we were struggling for like three years. We don't want anybody to know that we're just really wrestling with depression. We'll put on a happy face for a few hours on a Sunday morning. But when it really gets down to it, where we invite people in to walk the journey of life and faith with us. You see, and especially in our Western culture, we've really latched onto this idea of having a personal relationship with Jesus. And we do have that. Praise be to God. What a, what a blessing. But your personal relationship with Jesus was never intended to be private. It was never intended to just stop there. And yeah, it's just me and God. No, no. One of God's greatest blessings is the people that are sitting around you. Listen to the way that Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now, just a quick, just want to point out that if we need comfort to be comforted, it means that we're uncomfortable, right? Right. See, so God isn't interested in just keeping us from all hurt and all pain. He's interested in redeeming it. The God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Here's what Paul said. Not only does God intend to redeem your hurt, but he intends to use your redeemed hurt in the lives of other people to help redeem their hurt also. That there's things that God brings you through, ways that he works in your heart and in your life in order to turn in you and make in you and shape you so that you can walk with other people in this body through similar circumstances. That's what Paul just said to the Corinthian church. So here's the deal. If we're not open with that to other people, if we're not open with our hurt and with our pain and with the things that God has done, then we rob other people of the blessing of us walking with them and we rob ourselves of the joy of knowing that God is using us in the lives of other people. So I wonder if our desire to protect, our desire to protect ourselves robs us from the redemption that God wants to usher us into as we walk with one another. Look at the way that James writes this to the church. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And in many ways, the healing happens as we confess and get out of the darkness, that which is killing us and bring it into the light. See, David could never go into battle alone. If he does, he gets destroyed. So do you. But God never intended you to fight that way. God never intended you to fight that way. Verse 16. Verse 16. He led David down. And there they were. Scattered over the countryside. Eating, drinking, reveling. Because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. And David fought them from dusk until dawn. And until evening the next day. And none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything. 
the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing. Here's a, he, he, the, the author is trying to make a point here. Right? They didn't lose anything. Everything was recovered. Nothing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder, anything else that was taken. David brought everything back. And he took all the flocks and the herds and his men and drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Nothing was missing. Everything was brought back. You have a God. You have a God who may not keep every hurt from you, but he will redeem every single hurt. And we may not know the way that that exactly looks like this side of heaven always, but you can trust in this, is that this is a reality for followers of Jesus, that nothing will be lost. And see, not only that, not only that, see, God is not just good, he's awesome. He's awesome because he doesn't just give David back what was taken from him. He gives David back more than what was taken. Did you catch that? Everything they had in this valley, David walked away with. And see, here's the truth of the matter, is that redemption results not only in God's restoration, but also in God's blessing. There's those different things. Restoration is God restoring David and the Israelites to back to zero, back to what was taken from them. Oh, but your God is way better than that. He doesn't just restore them to zero. He says, oh, I'm going to lavish my goodness and my blessing and my favor on you. And you see, this, is, this works out practically. It works out in reality. It really does. It's that, it's that phrase that people utter. I hate that I went through that, but on this side of it, I'm glad that I did. I hate that that happened, but I'm stronger because of it. See, I I always thought that that was a trite cliche said by people who are really still hurting over what they'd been through. Until Until I lived it. I mean, for, for about a year, Kelly and I, um, back in 2005, we were wrestling with, not only with God, but with each other. And our, and our marriage was, was hard. And so we had to say, all right, God, we're going to go and we're going we're gonna to seek some counseling and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fight for this because we believe it's worth the fight. And, and what God did in that year as we sort of healed was um, he built a stronger foundation than would have ever been built without that. And he used what was what, what our hurt and he redeemed it, not only just restored us, but, oh man, he was way better than restoration. He, he blessed us. And where, where we're at right now would never be possible without walking through that and seeing God's faithfulness and seeing him build our lives around what was rubble, but to make it something absolutely beautiful. He didn't just restore, he blessed because he's way better than good. He's amazing. He's amazing. And there's some of you, and maybe that's a word for someone here this morning, is that, that God is at work in your life. 
And you may be going through a difficult season, one where you don't know how it's going to end. And it's hard, and it's painful, and it stinks, and it hurts. But I think God wants you to know, he's not just going to restore what's been taken, but he's going to bless on top of that. Because that's the way our God works. I mean, you look at Job's life. Job's life is absolutely decimated, and we sort of focus on that part. But if you look at the very end of Job's life, I think I have it here. This is what Job, at the very end of of his life, is what it says about him. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. See, God doesn't just restore, he blesses. He had 14,000 sheep. That's a ton of sheep. 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Listen to the way that that Isaiah chapter 61 puts it. After sort of talking about the gospel, it says that God will provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of the splendor. Here's what Isaiah said. God isn't going to keep every hurt from you. But he will redeem the hurt. He will build on the hurt. He will shape you through the pain. And when he's done, it's going to be like ashes turned to beauty. And you're going to be looked at as somebody that people go, oh man, isn't God good? Isn't God good? Verse 21, and David came to the 200 men who had been sitting, sipping iced tea with their feet next to the brook. Oh, I mean, the men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bashor Ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. And as David and his men approached, he greeted them. But the evil men, the troublemakers amongst David's followers said, because they did not go with us, we will not share in the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his own wife and his children and go. Notice it says the evil men. In other translations, it says the wicked men. And notice how scripture in this passage defines wickedness. Wickedness is wanting to keep what you rightfully earned as your own. That's wickedness is an, an inability to be generous with people who didn't deserve what's coming their way. Verse 23. And David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what. See, see, here's what David gets. The Lord has given it. You didn't earn it, guys. Well, you think 400 men going to wipe out a whole army? You think that's you? Come on. Who will listen? He has protected us and handed us. To us, the forces that came against us, who will listen to what you say? The share of the men who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this statute an ordinance for Israel for that day to this. Uh, I want to make a brief point and then um, conclude. Your willingness, your willingness to fight for the redemption and joy in life that God has paid for you on the cross of Calvary is not an endeavor that terminates in you. You don't just fight for you. 
like with other, all the men, will you just look up at me for a second? That you, as you lead your families and you seek God and you want to lay yourself before him and you want to get healthy, you don't fight for just you, you fight for your families also. That the blessing that you receive from God as you walk in the redemption that he has for you is not just for you. It's not just for you. It's for everybody around you, people that didn't fight for it, people that don't deserve it, for just the bystanders. They get blessed in this. Look at who is the recipient of this fight. The, the people that get blessed are the women, the kids, the children who are taken off and their lives are absolutely over for as far as they know. David goes and he fights and they're blessed. The 200 men sipping iced tea next to the brook. They get to partake in it. Everybody does. You see, here's the truth of the matter, is that redemption always overflows. It's not just for you. It's for everybody around you. It's for everybody around you. And isn't this a beautiful picture of the gospel? that something was wrongfully stolen. And someone's unwilling to let it just go. So they go and they fight. And they bring it back. Do you know sin severed you and I from God? Sin in your life and sin in my life. And it was as though the enemy just came and and took us away from what we were rightfully designed for. And luckily, you have a God who's not okay with that. Who's not okay with that. And so he clothes himself in humanity. He clothes himself in the form of a man. And Jesus Christ empties himself of all that it means to be God and humbles himself to be a servant. Not just a servant, to become obedient to death on a cross. Why? Because he wants to fight for you. Because he loves you, because he's not willing to just let you go and let you perish and let you die. But he's going to go and he's going to regain what's rightfully his. And that's the gospel, friends, is that God was unwilling to let you just perish. But he was going to fight to bring you back. And so in many ways, we're like the people who just sit on the shore of the brook and bask in the sun. And God comes and he rescues and he blesses and he restores better than you and I could ever possibly imagine. What a beautiful picture of a good and gracious God who fights on our behalf. And then invites us to follow him into the abundant life that he purchases for us. But in between that, his fighting and the abundant life is a war that wages inside of us. He's already purchased the redemption, friend. The question is will we follow him into it? Will we, will we grieve over the loss of life that sin takes from us? Will we go to him and interact with him and pray and seek his counsel and seek his wisdom? Will we invite other people to come alongside of us in that journey? And will we be the type of people like oaks of righteousness 
who when we soak and sit in his redemption, just become an aroma to the world around us. I pray that we would be the type of people who grieve over stolen life, but who recognize that we have a God who doesn't keep us from every hurt, but who is faithful to redeem it if we're willing to follow. I pray for me and I'll pray it over you. Let's pray.